The sermon, which will be read this afternoon, was prepared by Reverend C. Stam, Minister Emeritus, Cornerstone Canadian Reformed Church in Hamilton. In response to the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 49, stanza 2, 4, and 5. Let us now open our book of praise to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16, that will be found on page 530. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he was really that he really had died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with no less than five questions and answers, Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism is rather lengthy. It seems hardly possible to deal in one sermon with all the rich material contained in it. It is clear, however, that the theme of this Lord's Day is the death of Christ, and in connection with that, our death as well. In four of the questions and answers, the matter of death and dying is a key issue. So we will have to approach matters here from that angle as well. First, we confess in in the Lord's Day the necessity of Christ's death. Question 40. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Then we confess the reality of his death. Question 41. Why was he buried? Christ had to die, and he really did die. That is the starting point here. That is the all-embracing truth and comfort of this Lord's Day. Then, in the next two questions and answers, we confess the benefit of his death. More specifically, we confess the benefit for us, his people. Does anything change for us now that he has died in our place? Christ's death had great consequences for himself, 
His death ended his earthly ministry of humiliation. True, there was still the act of burial, but soon there would be the glory of the resurrection. Christ's death closes off an era of suffering and leads him to a new era of glory and honor. But what does that mean for us? Does it really make any difference for us that he died? His death also, does his death also lead us to a new era? With these questions, we may come to understand the consequences of Christ's death for our own life. I summarize the Lord's Day as follows. Christ died to give us life. Life that never ends. Life that begins now. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is an atoning death, must have effect and consequence for us also. In answer 40, we find that his death was a matter of satisfaction for our sins. We must always connect death with sin. As Paul says, the wages of sin is death. So it is Christ's death, but our sins. If by his death our sins are taken away, does this not have some bearing on our death or dying? May we not expect that since Christ died for us, for our sins, that we no longer have to die? That is the question we find in question 42. Since Christ died for us, why do we still have to die? This question is not as foolish as it may seem at first glance, but it is very vital and a very beautiful question. The reasoning behind the question arises from the whole doctrine of atonement and is quite sound. Atonement, or satisfaction, implies that Christ did for us. We do not have to do for ourselves. Christ paid for our sins, so we are now free from that obligation. Christ suffered the unspeakable anguish and torment of hell, and therefore we do not have to undergo this terror and anguish. We have been delivered from all of this. He bore our curse so that it no longer lays upon us. The rule of atonement is that what Christ has done for us, we no longer have to do. But does the rule of atonement fail us here in this vital matter? The confession of Lord's Day 16 is that he died, and that he did so in our place and for our sins. But then, why must, why must we still die? Death is still, is still the ultimate reality for all of us. The cross apparently does not undo the grave. His death does not undo our death. In this respect, the situation is just as it was before Golgotha. As we were once born, so we are set to die. Is it not a bit strange and even deeply disappointing? The rule of atonement applies to everything except death. 
atheist scholars will, at this point, gladly tell us the Christian faith, too, has not solved the problem of death. Sure, we preach life after death, something which cannot be scientifically proven, but what does that benefit us now? Why can Christ's death not have as consistent consequence that we no longer have to die? We must go to the scriptures to find the answer to these questions. And then it quickly becomes plainly evident that the cross and the death of Christ, which do bring about a new reality for God's children, do not remove certain things, but put them in a different perspective, in a new dimension. The death of Christ has taken away the cause of our eternal hunger and misery, namely sin, as the form for the Lord's Supper so beautifully puts it, but this does not imply that all effects of sin has not, have now been simultaneously removed. <clears throat> there is still death, and not only death, but also many related matters such as pain, sickness, and strife. We still have a sinful nature and a body of death, as Paul writes to the Romans. Many of our relationships in this world, the church, and the home show scars of sin. And so it would be quite unscriptural to suggest that because the cause is removed, the effects are also simultaneously gone. The cause can be removed at once. The effects disappear in the course of time. It is a typical claim of sectarian faith healers that, because Christ died for us, effects like sickness must now be absent from our lives and will be instantaneously removed by faith and prayer, as upon some miraculous command. Believers need not be sick, they argue. On the same basis, one could argue that believers will never die, but even the ardent faith healers have not been able to solve that problem. The healings that are described in the Bible are designed to emphasize the underlying reality of redemption by the blood of the cross. They show the breakthrough of the kingdom of heaven, but there is no suggestion in scriptures that such healing will take place for all in each and every age and that all sickness together with the end result death has been removed. Death is still a reality which also the children of God must face. The Apostle Paul is quite clear when he calls death the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26. This destruction of death will take place on the great day of days, when also the resurrection takes place. And after that, no one will ever die again. Until that time, death stays with us. It is in this world as a reality, as a last enemy which we must all face. Just as Satan is an enemy, as the world and our own sinful flesh are enemies, so also death is an enemy. After we have struggled with Satan, the world, and our own flesh, we must face death, our final enemy. This is one of the most difficult experiences for a living being, also for Christian believers.
Perhaps this is one reason why we should never speak lightly about death and dying. When a Dutch theologian in the 1950s and 60s wrote that when we die, our soul does not immediately go to Christ its head, as we confess in Lord's Day 22, this was indeed a terrible heresy because it denies the effects of the cross. But some reacted wrongly by saying that death is overcome, that it is nothing for believers. This was not a very scriptural reaction, for we read that death will finally be overcome and undone on the day of resurrection. Until then, <clears throat> until then death remains an enemy. And we must not make light of it in any way. Those who make light of it may have the greatest difficulty with it when it does come. An enemy, says the Bible, you can face it, yes, and even overcome it, but only through faith, through the courage and strength of the Holy Spirit. If ever we need the grace of God, it is certainly in the hour of death. To face death, we need a lifetime of spiritual growth, faith, and divine grace. So we go back to our initial conclusion. Death has not yet been removed. This will indeed happen, but only on the day of the great resurrection. But in the meanwhile, the function of death and the power of death have been altered and changed and are now bound to God's decree of salvation. This is a promise already in the Old Testament, and it becomes immediately clear in the New Testament. In its initial devastating and annihilating capacity, death no longer has a grip on the children of God, neither on Abraham nor on us. Let me say it this way. Death which comes to us as a last enemy, now in virtue of the cross, becomes an ally. Although it was intended to break all communion with God and the living, death now serves as a passageway to greater communion with God and the living. On the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ paid for our sins. We need not do this anymore. That is indeed the law of atonement. The catechism says our death is not a payment for our sins. This means that we cannot die a death like his. As our mediator, he was under the law of sin, and his death was the terrible, all-consuming penalty for sin. In a way, he was in the state of death his, through his whole life especially on the cross and in the grave. He faced the utter breakdown of communion with his Father. And he did all this for us. This means that we are past that stage. We have been placed into an eternal communion with God. We are in the state of life and have passed out of the state of death. I am tempted to quote many texts to prove this important point, but let me direct you simply to what we have read in John 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has bypassed from death to life. Christ is speaking here to those who must yet die, but still he says, You have, not will get, but have eternal life. You have passed, not one day will pass, but have passed from death to life. There is a new status for those who believe, the state of life. By faith in Christ, and in virtue of his atoning death on the cross, we have eternal life. What does this mean? Life is communion and contact. Only the living can see, hear, spell, touch, breathe, give, and receive. Life is that which binds us to each other, to God. What does eternal mean? It means both ongoing and without end. So when Christ says that we have eternal life, it means that we have uninterrupted communion with God and his children. Communion without end or interruption. That is eternal life. Death as damnation a breakdown of communication, of communion, is what Christ experienced and is therefore something which those who believe in Christ cannot experience. You see, also in this case, the rule of atonement does fully apply. Our death is not a payment for sins. We do not die because of our sins, but we die unto sin to get away from sins and our sinful nature. The Catechism puts it this way. Our death puts an end to sin. Death is not an end to life, but an end to sin. In his death, Christ took away the guilt of our sin. And when we die, we are freed from all the effects of sin. We leave behind the sinful flesh, the body of death, and we go out of this corrupt world. We leave behind all that is part of the sinful life, even our earthly relationships and possessions, and we enter the sinless, heavenly reality of Christ. That is what happens when we die. Again, let us not minimalize this in any way. Death is traumatic in the sense that we are torn away from and must tear ourselves away from all that is known and that is dear to us. That is not easy to do. It is not normal to yearn for death. It is not truly Christian either, for we must work in the kingdom rather than dream about heaven. Death is a serious separation from all that we know and love. And therefore, we need the grace of God to face it. But it is clear that we must leave all this behind. In our present state, sinful, corrupt, and weak, we cannot see God. We must either die, or as Paul says to the Corinthians, be changed in an instant. 
We must leave this body behind in order to receive the incorruptible body. We must leave this world behind for the new world. We must leave these relationships behind for new relationships. The old is making way for the new. Death now serves as an entrance, says the Catechism. Death is not a closed door, a dead-end street, but a gateway. It is something through which we pass in order to arrive at another place, a better destination. For Christ died to give us life, life that never ends. He gives us new life, a life that already now shows a different style and content. We come to the second point, life that begins now. We have now looked at the significance of dying. We have looked at the life to come and how we enter it. But we should also see this new life does not merely begin on the new earth or in heaven with Christ. Instead, it begins already now in this life. I am saying that the death of Christ does not only determine our future life, but also our present life. Sure, the great benefit is entering into eternal life, leaving sin and sinfulness behind, but that is a future perspective. What about now? Does life go on here as before? you will realize that after the death of Christ, life cannot go on as before. The Catechism explains this clearly when it asks, what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? The greatest benefit is that our life never ends. But there is also further benefit. We receive a new life that begins now. For we discover that not only has the guilt of our sin been removed by Christ on the cross, but also the power of sin in our lives has been broken. The Catechism says that through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him. I said earlier that our old nature is still with us, but does not this answer teach the opposite, namely that our old nature is gone, dead and buried. Is this answer not a bit perfectionistic? Is it real? Does not experience teach us that our old nature is not dead and buried, but very much alive and very active. Our old nature is crucified, slain, and buried. This is indeed powerful language in the Catechism, but it is true. We cannot accept Christ's death for us and then go on living our old life of sin. The new life does not begin in heaven. No, it begins now, here on earth. Notice that the Catechism does not say that we have crucified our old nature, but rather that our old nature is crucified and buried with him. 
He took our weakened nature to the cross. In the flesh he overcame all sin and fulfilled all righteousness. And this now has consequences for us. The original German text reads, Through Christ's power, our old nature is crucified. It is by his power that he already now gives us new life. For he has overcome the weakness of our flesh. The catechism does not imply that these weaknesses are no longer with us. Again, our weaknesses are removed only when we die. But the great difference is that the power of Christ is manifest in our lives, so that evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us. To reign means to have absolute control. The Catechism has taken here the language of Romans 6, where we can read that Christ has destroyed the body of sin so that we might no longer be enslaved by sin. The benefit of Christ's death is that we are no longer in the state of death and under the power of sin, but rather live in the renewing power of Christ our Lord. We have been set free to a new service. That is a big difference. True, Satan still has power, and he will be bound fully on the day of judgment. Sin still has effect, and it will be removed only on the great day of judgment. Our weak flesh still influences more than we may like, and we lose that only through death. The world still fights us, and it will be destroyed only when Christ returns. All this is true, and we must reckon with it every day, and we may never let our guard down for one instance, lest we come to his terrible fall. But nevertheless, because of Christ's death, Satan, sin, the world, and our own flesh have no absolute power over us anymore. Now Christ is in full charge of our lives. Now he urges us on to our glorious destination. He protects and preserves us in the salvation that he obtained for us. When we falter, he admonishes us. When we go astray, he calls us back. When we fear, he comforts us. When we fall, he lifts us up. When we despair, he restores to us the joy of faith. The effects of sin are still with us. And ultimately, we must face the breakdown of the sinful body. But sin and death have no final say, no decisive influence over us. The power of Christ is manifest in us. Already now, in this life, we live with Christ. The power of Christ is manifest, over, is manifest in the lives of God's children. This was so already in the Old Testament. Think, for example, of Abraham and David. Although they were indeed sinful people, God's sovereign grace was triumphant in their lives. 
This is also true today, even in richer measure. How do we know whether the power of sin is indeed broken in our lives? The Catechism says that when sin no longer reigns in us, we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Christ, Christ's sacrifice was payment. Our sacrifice is gratitude. We find, O wonder of grace, that despite all our weaknesses, there is something new in our lives. We find that we do live for Christ, and many sins which we still find within ourselves are sins against our will. We strive to do His will, and our weaknesses and our sins greatly bother us. Time and time again, we begin anew in the service of the Lord, raised up by His power. For Christ died that we may have life, new life that begins now on this earth. Unbelieving people have only this world, and they live only for their earthly wealth, treasures and relationships, and they exhaust it all to the bitter end. But with us, it is different. We are not slaves of this world, of the flesh and its passions. We receive and use all things in the Lord's service and for his glory. For Christ died to give us life, life that never ends. Life that begins now. And life means communion with God and his people. Life means new relationships with God and one another. It all starts here, in this life. And it just carries on in perfection forever and ever. Death is living in sin, dedicated to oneself and to the world. And it means having to face an eternal damnation. Life does not start after death. No, it starts now. And it flows to us from the cross. It is fed by the power of the risen Christ. If we do not live for God in this life, we will not live for him in the life to come. The power of sin is broken here in this life or it is not broken at all. We have to face so many enemies, sin, Satan, the world, our flesh. Let us always be on guard. And one day we must face the final enemy, death. But if we have faced all the others in the power and victory of Christ, we can also face the last enemy in the same power and victory. And in that hour of death, we will and experience as throughout our life. I know in whom my hope is founded. Thou art my rock, I trust thy might. When once life's evening veils enshroud me, I'll bring, though worn by ills and strife, for every day thou hast allowed me the higher praise, O God of life.